Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Which means that the greatest risk we face as a church in these days is not the loss of an organ, or the loss of money, or the loss of staff, or the loss of elders, or the loss of members, or the loss of reputation, but the loss of heaven. Because it is possible to become so hardened in a path of unforgiveness that you prove that God is not in you and that you do not have his forgiveness and therefore are lost. Jesus said, pray, our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And then he explained in verses 14 and 15 why he told us to pray this way, because he said, for if you forgive men their transgressions, your Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your trespasses or transgressions. If we hold on to an unforgiving spirit, if we cherish it, and it becomes our way, God will not forgive us for our sins. Matthew 18 tells a parable to reinforce this with some awful words. Peter comes to Jesus in verse 21 of Matthew 18. He says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus answers, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Then he tells a story, a parable. There's a king. He has a servant who owes him about a million dollars. thousand talents in those days. About a million dollars. Ten million maybe. He pleads for mercy. The king remits it. Forgives him. The servant goes out and he finds a fellow servant, not a king-servant relationship this time, a fellow servant who owes him about $10. He says, pay me. And he says, just give me a little time and I'll pay you, I promise. Forgive me for taking so long. I will, I will. 
And he wrings his neck and puts him in jail. The king hears about it, and these are his words to the unforgiving servant. Verse 32. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow servant, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers. That's the literal rendering, the NASV, not just jailers. Handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. So Matthew 6.15 and Matthew 18.35 teach... If we fall into a pathway of unforgiveness and become hardened in it and cherish it as a way, we're going to go to hell. No matter what kinds of decisions we've made in the past or whether we've spent our whole life in church. The reason for this is not that you can earn heaven by forgiving others. The reason is not that you can merit forgiveness by being a forgiven, forgiving person as though you muster enough forgiveness and then God checks it out and he, he kicks in with his forgiveness. That's not the reason this text is true. The reason is because if you don't release forgiveness to others, if we don't have a forgiving spirit to those who have wronged us, we are bearing infallible witness that we have not lived upon, cherished, been rooted in, and been swallowed up by the $10 million forgiveness of God in our lives. He is not there. And that's why we don't go to heaven or get forgiveness. We haven't trusted Him. If we trust Him... We will not be able to take from him a $10 million forgiveness and refuse to extend it to a $10 debt. We do more dishonor to God in one day than everybody does to us in a lifetime. The reason he said you won't go to heaven and get forgiven when you die if you don't forgive is because it bears witness to the fact that we've never embraced and been transformed by his forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Well, there he flops it around. See? This straightens it out for us. Forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. If we have the capacity to forgive those who wrong us, it's because our roots are sunk in God's forgiveness. His forgiveness is the platform, the soil, the energy, the life, the creative power that produces anything like forgiveness in us. Therefore, if it isn't coming out of us, we're not rooted in it. And that's why there's no forgiveness in the judgment day for us. And therefore, the greatest risk of Bethlehem right now is losing heaven, nothing else. Because 
everywhere you look at Bethlehem right now, the issue is forgiveness. The question is forgiveness. Is there forgiveness in my heart and yours for Dean, for Leah? Is there forgiveness for those who indict me or the staff or the elders? Is there forgiveness for organ supporters? And is there forgiveness for organ opposers? And is there forgiveness for all the husbands and all the wives who in the last six weeks, dozens of them have been more vulnerable, more open, more confessing than ever in their lives? What's going on out there in all those households? Is there forgiveness there? Everywhere you look, somebody has somebody to forgive. Now, as I've thought about this and what the Lord might want to say to us in this season, here's what I think he's led me to do. I want to preach today on what it is, what it looks like when it happens, this thing called forgiveness. Next Sunday's Palm Sunday. Kids are going to be ministering. Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He's moving to the cross. And I want to talk about the, the root and the foundation and the basis of it all. And where do you get the power to do this thing called Forgiveness. What is it like to be forgiven by God in Christ? And then Easter, two weeks from now, I want to take that great text from 1 Corinthians 15, 17, which says, If Christ is not raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. But Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and is the vindication of our forgiveness and of our power to forgive. It just feels to me like there's a, what is it? How can it happen? And what's the vindication of it in these three weeks together as we move toward the end of the Lenten season? So I ask your prayer for us as a church and for me as I try to wrestle with this. In fact, I'd like to pray right now before we tackle today's topic. Lord, the kingdom of God, you've taught us, is not words. It does not come in words. It comes with power. Humans are capable of rhetorical flourishes, sermonic flow, but only God, the Holy Spirit, is capable of empowering those words, of transforming lives, of creating forgiveness, of healing a church, of leading us through the Red Sea. So, Lord, I pray that you come now by your Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus and speak in power. Amen. What is it? If it's that necessary, so that if you lead a life without it, if you sink into an unforgiving spirit, you don't even get God's forgiveness in the end and you perish with the tormentors. If it's that important, I feel a tremendous burden in my own life to know what it is. Because we've got to know whether we're doing it or not. Let me start with a definition from Thomas Watson in his book, Body of Divinity, 350 years ago. 
the place I go to find profound, heart-searching truth. Here's his definition of what it's like. He asks, when do we forgive others? Answer, when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish well to them, grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. I took that definition and I sought the scriptures and sought the Lord. Is that a biblical, is that a good definition of forgiveness when it happens horizontally? And I have concluded it is a very good definition. Because every phrase in it comes right out of a Bible text. So what I'm going to do is just read them again and give you the verse so that you'll hear not Watson this time, but God. Resist thoughts of revenge when someone has wronged you. Romans 12:19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Second, don't seek to do them mischief. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays another evil for evil. Third, wish well to them. Luke 6.28 Bless those who curse you. A blessing is a, a wish turned Godward. That's why when you bless somebody, you look at their eyes, but you're talking to God. Sort of. It's a... You're, you're, May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. You're asking God to do something. This is a very strange thing. It's, it's a wish well. And Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Grieve at their calamities. Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Five. Pray for them. Matthew 5.44, but I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Six, seek reconciliation with them. Romans 12.18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And finally, number seven, be always willing to come to their relief. Exodus 23.4, Hear this practical, nitty-gritty, old-fashioned. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. There's forgiveness. It's a beautiful definition. Resisting revenge, not returning evil for evil, Wishing them well, grieving at their calamity, praying for their welfare, seeking reconciliation as far as it depends on you, and coming to their aid if their dog runs away or anything else bad happens to you. There's a forgiving heart, and the heart is everything 
You can try to fake that, but the heart is everything. Jesus said, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, so will my Father do to you. Here's a remarkable thing about this definition. What it does not say. It's just as important for surviving life and for dealing with the horrors and the realities of broken relationships that we know what forgiveness is not as well as what it is. Let me give you three things that are not in this definition and that I believe forgiveness is not. Number one, forgiveness is not the absence of anger at sin. It is not feeling good about what is bad. Yesterday morning at about 10.30, I finished my devotions and prayer and flicked on the computer and was ready to start putting things on paper for this sermon. And the phone rang. God is so good. He's so good because I spent probably an hour and a half with Noel trying to work through what forgiveness was Friday night, asking her all kinds of questions about what if this and what if that and what if this. And we were working it out. I felt totally confused at the end of that conversation. And I think she did too. So I, I was Saturday morning very confused about forgiveness. I got this phone call from a pastor about 1,500 miles from here. Well, I won't tell you where, who. And he, uh, he said, God has just put you on my heart this morning. I want to pray for you. How can I pray? Well, after I recovered myself. Whenever people tell me that these days, I can't get all misty. And uh, so I just told him, I don't know quite what to say about forgiveness tomorrow. And then he started sharing with me what he's been through in his own church. He told me about a woman. He'd been at the church several years when this happened. He noticed that she was a faithful member, she was a minister in the church, but she never came to communion. She skipped that Sunday every time. Finally, he got bold enough to just be aggressive and say, why don't you come to communion? And she was real resistant at first, and he pressed in, and she said, you, you say a lot about being spiritually fit for communion and... Uh, needing to be right with God and no unsettled issues. Every time I sit in front of that table, my mind goes back 15 years to the separation with my husband who beat me all the time and raped my children. And I get so angry at what he did and what's become of those girls. I, I don't think I'm fit. Fifteen years. Fifteen years. What was important for that woman, my, my friend said, <laughs> was uh, she needed to know what forgiveness was not. And he said to her, and I think he's right, forgiveness is not not feeling anger at sin. Forgiveness is not not feeling bad about what was bad. Forgiveness, am I saying that? Unforgiveness. Yeah. Unforgiveness is when you start to cherish that. You don't roll it over onto God and give it to Him like it says in 1 Peter 2, 24. You don't believe vengeance is mine and you start to wish the husband ill. 
It's not that bad feelings arise in the sense of outrage at the price that has been paid for 15 years because of sin. We must separate somehow this so that you don't come on Maundy Thursday, for example, 10 days from now, and feel like bad feelings about bad behavior is a bad thing. It isn't. It can become a bad thing. We'll see more about that in a minute. He encouraged her to eat communion, forgiving her husband in this way and rolling that onto the Lord. So my first statement that forgiveness is not is it is not the absence of anger at sin or feeling good about what was bad. Second, forgiveness is not the absence of serious consequences for sin. He told me on the phone that he has been instrumental in his few short years at his church of putting two of his deacons in prison for child abuse. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the stress that church is laboring under as they try to come to terms with what is it to forgive a person that you have borne witness against such that they are now in jail? So the, the second point is this. Forgiveness is not the absence of serious consequences for sin. Let me go to Thomas Watson again. He asked this question. You answer it before I give you the answer. Is God angry with his pardoned ones? Is God angry with his forgiven children? Are there consequences after being forgiven? Here's his answer. Though a child of God, after pardon, may incur his fatherly displeasure, yet his judicial wrath is removed. Though he may lay on the rod, yet he has taken away the curse. Correction may befall the saints, but not destruction. Now that gives us a pointer in our own horizontal dealings with people as to whether or not there can be forgiveness and then painful consequences. Here's the biblical evidence that there can be. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 12 says, I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Hmm. 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 Because verse 12, I mean chapter 12 in Hebrews says, verse 6, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he whips every son whom he receives. Our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Therefore, putting the two together, chapter 8 and chapter 12, same author, give him the benefit of the doubt that he's not 
self-contradictory. God pardons, forgives, and forgets in the sense that he never ever brings up a sin again in order to feel judicial wrath and condemnation and destruction upon that sin. However, God is not blind. He's God. And if we sin, he may spank. He does not forget in the sense that he does good to us through painful consequences for our holiness by remembering the sin that he's punishing. Here's another biblical example. You know King David, what he did, his adultery, his murder. And after all of that, Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Doing evil in his sight, you've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. And David is stung by that harsh rebuke. He humbles himself, he pleads for forgiveness, and Nathan says, The Lord has taken away your sin. And then listen to what follows. Mark the order. However, David, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall die. Moreover, he goes on to say this. The sword shall never depart from your house. You have despised me. You have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. This is a word to a forgiven sinner. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Forgiven, David. Here's another example of consequences that follow after forgiveness. In Numbers 14, many of us have been reading the book of Numbers in these days, and it's amazing what's there for us. But in Numbers 14, the people hear the words of Joshua and Caleb. We can do it. We can take the land. The Lord will give it to us. And these people are angry. And they want to stone them and get new leaders and go back to Egypt. And Moses, the meekest man on the earth, prays for them. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy loving kindness, just as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And the Lord says, I have pardoned them according to your word. Then, he says, as I live, and as all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord, all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt, performed in Egypt, and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land. 
My second point is that forgiveness is not the absence of painful consequences after forgiveness. The Psalm 99 verse 8 sums it up like this. O Lord our God, thou didst answer them, these Jews, thou wast a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of all their evil deeds. There's one last thing that forgiveness is not. It is not the same when the one who has wronged is repentant as when that person is unrepentant. Forgiveness is not the same in those two cases. This is where I started to get really confused with Noel as we tried to work our way through this and tried to say, well, now, um, if, if there's repentance, is forgiveness the same as when there's no repentance? Can you forgive an, an unrepentant sin? Sometimes people have done wrong, they know it, and they don't repent. Other times they don't think they've done any wrong, and you think they've done wrong, and you want to forgive them, and they don't say they've done wrong. happens all the time in marriage. Sometimes it happens in a church. What can you do? Can you forgive somebody who... Jesus said in Luke 17, 3, Be on the guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, big if, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times and says, I repent, forgive him. So it sounds like there's a condition of repentance in order for forgiveness at least to be its full self. However, however, if a person is in that category and they don't repent, the Bible still says, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And that too is forgiveness, isn't it? You're letting it go. So you can do a measure of forgiving toward a non-repentant person. You can love them. You can will their good. You can pray for them. You can do good to them. You can wish them well. But if they don't repent, or if they don't even admit they've done wrong, you're blocked in the full exercise of forgiveness. No evil on your part. Insofar as it lies with you, if they block you, then what's missing is the extent of forgiveness to reconciliation and the extent of forgiveness to restoration and the extent of forgiveness to intimacy. And so there's a difference in the New Testament between the intimacy of love that we share with a brother in the family of God and the, the intimacy that we can enjoy with an enemy whom we love and would lay down our lives for but we can't have any reconciliation with. So my third thing is that forgiveness is not the same when you're dealing with somebody who is unrepentant as when you're dealing with somebody who is. One last quote from Thomas Watson that just shook me, just shook me, because it just puts in such graphic terms where this actually can leave you. Sometimes we're very idealistic about where forgiveness might lead us. He says, we are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. 
which means you can stand with all authenticity, all love, and all forgiveness in front of a person and eyeball to eyeball say, I forgive you and I do not trust you. I mean, would they feel forgiven? How, how would they feel? There's a danger here in saying what I just said, that you can, you can look a person in the eye and say, I forgive you and I don't trust you. And the danger is that, that beneath those words, I don't trust you, are these feelings. And I'll never trust you again. And I don't care how hard you work, I won't even pay any attention to your efforts to win trust from me again. In fact, I hope nobody trusts you again, trusts you again. And I don't care if your life is ruined by the breach you've made in our trust. If that's the feeling behind, I don't trust you, you're not forgiving. We know the difference. We know the difference. It's not an easy thing, is it? It's not even easy to understand what forgiveness is. But I think the Lord can provide. We're a church at risk. Everybody has somebody that we can forgive more fully. Everybody in this room, I think. We need to see Jesus. We need to feel what it's like to be forgiven a million dollar debt. We need to be back here next Sunday for the children and for that message. Oh God, the image you gave me as I was bowed in prayer here, closing the service in the first hour was of a a tide moving in to a harbor where a lot of ships are mired in the beach of unforgiveness. And the tide of love flows in slowly and rises little by little. All the ships rise on the tide. And they float out into the ocean so that they can become in beautiful formation an armada. Not fighting each other, but fighting the enemy that Tom was praying about. So I ask, Lord, this afternoon as we're all praying, as we come back tonight, that the tide would come in. In Jesus' name I pray.